You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is truly a privilege to be here this morning and bring the Word of God to you. Uh, as Pastor Stephen said, I've known both Pastor Hans and Pastor Stephen for some time. Hans and I had the privilege of teaching a Bible study together when we were in seminary. And uh, I like to joke, but it's half serious, that uh, teaching a Bible study with Hans in seminary is what got me through seminary. Uh, we spent many evenings laughing together and crying together over our assignments, uh, but we made it through together. Uh, so I'm very grateful and thankful for both of them, and in particular, Hans, for all of the time that we have spent together in our seminary days. We'll open your Bibles to John chapter 20, will be our text this morning, John chapter 20. As we do every Sunday, we are going to focus on God's inspired, sufficient, and inerrant word for us this morning. And I am thankful that God's Word is able to encourage us and to exhort us and to equip us for anything that we will face in this life. John chapter 20 gives us a window into the very first Sunday gathering after the death of Jesus. We would have no reason to gather this morning if it was not for the reality that we are going to see in this text, that Jesus himself was risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples 2,000 years ago. We'll be focusing our attention this morning on verses 19 through 29 as Jesus appears to his doubting disciples and troubled Thomas. But let's pray before we get into the word this morning. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your guidance and help and assistance. Your word is perfect. Your word works in us. And I ask this morning that your words would continue to work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, through this text, that we would be encouraged and equipped for anything that we could face in this life because of who you are, and because of what you've done. Help me, Lord, to represent your truth accurately and well, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Fear has been the tactic of the enemy since the beginning. Fear is one of the most influential emotions that we can feel one of Satan's most powerful and effective tools is fear. Fear is something that is hardwired into us. As Pastor Stephen mentioned a moment ago, I've got four kids, and one of my kids has been getting into the habit of hiding around corners, and I walk around the corner, and he jumps out at me and uh, gets a good reaction, which he thoroughly enjoys. Uh, and then as soon as my blood pressure goes down again, he starts plotting his next 
attempt. Fear is an impulse. It's wired into our DNA. And in proper proportion, fear is a healthy thing in this sin-cursed reality. If we had no healthy fear of cold, we would get frostbite all too easily. If we had no healthy fear of the heat, we would get dehydrated too easily. However, like everything that makes us human, healthy things all too quickly and easily become unhealthy, damaging, or inflated. What is a healthy desire for safety and prudence and wisdom becomes a controlling desire when safety and protection become the target above everything else as we're going to see with the disciples this morning. The enemy knows how to harness fear in us to achieve his ends. Paul accurately calls Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4 the God of this world. Satan's currency is fear, and over the last couple of years, his portfolio has skyrocketed. Here's the problem. Fear can melt our fortitude as Christians. Fear can control the focus and intensity of our thoughts throughout the day, and especially at night. Fear can easily disorient us, blind us, and confuse us. Fear can cause us to behave and act in ways that would otherwise be inconsistent with our calling as little Christ. Fear is a fog that can cause us to lose sight of what we're here for, what our mission is in this life. In this text, the disciples have locked themselves inside a room. They are imprisoned by their own fears and Jesus comes in the midst of them and dispels that fear not through a change in circumstances but a change in perspective that his presence brings it's not through something physical like bulletproof armor or through uh, extra secure locks but it's through a change in perspective, a change in confidence, a change in trust that Jesus works in his disciples. We need this text this morning. I need this text this morning because every single one of us has moments of fear. Moments of fear, different kinds, different intensities, but we all have our times of being doubting disciples or troubled Thomas. And if the shadow of fear is not covering our pathway currently, it will at some point. So what should we do with fear as, as believers? What should we do as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ? What should we do with the cares and concerns of this troubled world? How can we live as God would want us to in the shadow of fear? And how do we extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy that he sends our way? The answer to all of these things is found in our text this morning. As Jesus Christ takes his fearful disciples 
and turns them into faithful followers. I want us to see ourselves in this text this morning. I want us to see ourselves in the humanity that is on full display in each one of the disciples. What I'm about to say is the message of this text. This is the point. If we take nothing else away from this text, let it be this. The solution to fear is always faith. And the product of faith is supernatural peace. The solution to fear is always faith and the product of that faith or trust or belief is always supernatural peace. Faith is something that is given to us by God at regeneration. It is a gift when we are saved, but then faith is something that we exercise as a believer and that we continue to harness daily, moment by moment, throughout our lives. The problem for me, the problem for us, is that we want peace without faith. We want stability through human insight instead of trust in God. And a trust that comes even in the face of difficult circumstances. We want the peace that surpasses all comprehension that Paul talks about in Philippians 4. But we want it through a trust or a faith and a belief in something human or earthly or tangible. Just as the disciples did. The solution in this text that Jesus provides to the disciples for fear is not a better lock, is not a different place to live. He doesn't provide his own angelic security. The solution in this text to fear is two realities. The first reality is this. Faith in the very real presence of Jesus with the disciples. And second, faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a belief, it's a trust, it's a reliance on who Jesus is and the reality of His presence with them. Both aspects are necessary ingredients for the antidote to fear. I love this text because the disciples did not just hear the voice of Jesus from heaven. They didn't just get some heavenly mailer sent to them that Jesus was alive. They saw Jesus and Jesus himself spoke to them. The reality of the presence of Jesus Christ for the disciples transformed them. Now, I'm not saying that we all need a vision of Jesus. We have everything we need in the sufficient written word. Nor do we need a vision to be assured of the presence of Jesus with us wherever we are. Whether we see him or not, God is present, right? Whether we visibly see him or not, is not God here with us this morning? 
What does the psalmist say? Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can we go outside the presence of God? He answers that question in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. There is nowhere that we will be in this life outside the presence of God himself. More than that, we have a promise in the Great Commission. At the very end of the Great Commission, we get the Great Promise. Matthew 28, 20 says, And lo, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples as he's about to ascend to heaven. And lo, I am with you when? Always. How long? Even to the end of the age. Was that only a promise for the twelve? Surely not. Just as the Great Commission is not merely a command for the twelve, so the promise of the Great Commission is not exclusively for the twelve either. Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. Are we convinced of the presence of Jesus in this life? Are we troubled this morning by risks that we cannot control? Are we weary this morning of trying to play God and managing the circumstances of our life? Are we fearful of what might be, could be, or maybe already is a reality in our lives? The solution to fear is faith. Faith in the presence and in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read our text this morning and then we will walk through it phrase by phrase. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger 
into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. We're given two scenes in this text that have striking similarities. When we dissect these scenes, the same thing is happening twice. The first snapshot is with the ten disciples, minus Thomas. The second is focused on one disciple, Thomas himself. The first scene in verse 19, the ten disciples have the doors shut, locked, bolted in fear of bodily harm from the Jews, trying to preserve their safety in their lives through a locked door. In the second scene in verse 26, eight days later, what are they doing? The disciples again are in a locked room. This time, Thomas is present with them. In the first scene in verse 19, three verbs are used to describe the visit of Jesus. It says that Jesus came, and Jesus stood, and Jesus said. In the second scene, in verse 26, these three verbs are present again. Jesus came, and he stood, and he said. In the first scene, in verse 20, Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side. In the second scene, in verse 27, Jesus instructs Thomas to put his finger in his hands and in his side. In the first scene, in verse 20, the disciples respond with rejoicing when they saw the Lord. In the second scene, in verse 28, Thomas responds with worship by saying, my Lord and my God. A deep utterance of belief and a conviction and trust in the presence and person of Jesus. Let's walk through each piece here, beginning in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, what day is he talking about? John is very specific in his verbiage. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. Darkness reigned. He was buried Saturday was a day without hope. If the disciples slept at all, they woke up knowing that the nightmare of the last hours were actually true. Jesus was dead. Their hope was extinguished. Confusion reigned in their minds and the clouds of fear were thick. Then on Sunday, the most astonishing thing happens. 
reports start flying around that Mary Magdalene and other women who went to visit the tomb, she came back and reported to the disciples saying that someone had taken the body. Peter and John had rushed to the tomb only to find it empty and they left perplexed, wondering and confused. After they leave, Jesus appeared to Mary. She thinks he's the gardener at first, but then Jesus calls her name, Mary, and she is overjoyed. She tells, Jesus tells her to go to the disciples and report what she had seen. On the way back to tell the disciples, Mary is with the other women and Jesus appears to them and tells them to rejoice, which they did. And Luke tells us that the women held him by the feet and worshipped him. Jesus tells them not to be afraid, but to go and tell his brethren. However, in Luke's account, we find out that when they reported to the disciples, the disciples' response was that the words seemed to be like idle tales and they did not believe them. That is the state of the disciples when we get to verse 19 in John 20. The day that John is referring to is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Easter Sunday is the first day of the week. And our text tells us in verse 19 that it was evening. The word used here is the period between late afternoon and darkness. Darkness is when Jesus was taken in the garden. Darkness is when evil is at work. Darkness is when the Jews executed their plans. Darkness is the time that Satan loved to work. And so we find the disciples. It's getting dark. They're hearing these reports. They're confused. And they're afraid. As the darkness begins to settle on the disciples, what is their situation? Again, verse 19, the doors were shut. They were locked. They were bolted where the disciples were. Why? We're given the reason in the text. For fear of the Jews. They're in hiding. They've locked themselves as best as they earthly can. If they had multiple bolts, they used them. Why? Simple. Because they're afraid. They are in fear of the Jews. And before we judge the disciples, think with me for a moment. From a human perspective, the probability of their survival was low. Think about it. The Jews had just managed to pull off the greatest murder in history, right? Jesus, the one who the Jews had murdered, was influential. The disciples were not. Jesus, the one who was just murdered, was someone who had committed no sin or wrong, and yet he was killed anyway. How much more vulnerable were the disciples? The leader of the disciples was put to death. How much easier would it be to put to death the followers? The Jews were starting to spread rumors that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus 
more than likely the disciples felt like they were next. Every knock at the door sent them jumping. They were in fear of what might happen to them. They were in fear that their death might be next. And from a human perspective, their fear was understandable. I think if we put ourselves in their position, would we not be feeling the same thing that they were feeling? Our focus might be captivated by our circumstances. But from a heavenly perspective, as they were about to find out, their fears were unnecessary. Their fear blinded them from believing these idle stories that they were hearing that Jesus had risen. From a heavenly perspective, the creator himself just defeated the power of death and of sin. And if they were to even die, they had hope and a future with him. Their actions and our actions reveal a fundamental lack of faith at times. But Jesus was about to turn that on its head, or at least start to turn that on its head. We don't find the disciples being bold and fearless until we get to Acts. Look again at verse 19. Remember the three verbs that I brought up a moment ago? Jesus came, it says in verse 19, and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. The locked door could not keep Jesus out. The Jews couldn't keep Jesus dead. He comes and manifests in their midst, in the middle of them. Immediately, fear is displaced in their hearts with belief and joy. Jesus, knowing their fear, says truly profound words. Think about the difference between where they're starting to what Jesus says. They're afraid and Jesus says, peace to you. Peace? How can they have peace? The Jews could come through that door any moment and end their lives. They could have peace only because the presence of Jesus was with them. And as the aged disciple John writes in 1 John chapter 4, he says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Peace produces the opposite of what fear produces. If the results of peace and the result of fear are placed on a spectrum, they're polar opposites. How can they have peace? Their circumstances have not changed other than the presence of Jesus with them? Was it peace of physical safety? Or that they wouldn't face a similar martyrdom as Jesus had experienced? Surely not. In fact, many of the disciples would die in the cause of Christ. Was it peace that they wouldn't be attacked or maligned by the Jewish leaders? Surely not. They were maligned by the Jewish leaders. This is a peace that only Jesus can give. This is a peace that comes from Jesus being in their midst. 
This is a peace that comes from being so convinced of the presence of Jesus with us that it gives us power to face anything in this life. Think about it. His power had just saved them from spiritual death through the cross. His power had just broken the curse of sin. His power had just paid in full for every single one of their sins. His power had just made the final atonement that the blood of sheep and goats could never bring. And his power had just secured their final resurrection. That's how they could have peace. That is the reason they could have peace. As Jesus promised, we will have trouble in this world. The disciples continued to experience trouble in their world. But we can have peace in the midst of trouble because the one who came and stood and spoke to the disciples comes and stands next to us and speaks through his word to us today. The world cannot know this peace. This isn't peace from war or conflict or strife or pain. This isn't peace as the world seeks peace. This peace is much better and much bigger than that. This is a peace with holy God. This is spiritual peace in the eye of the storm as the world rages around us. This peace is found in the presence and in the person of Jesus Christ. At the very end of our texts, if we look there for just a moment in verse 29, Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see. Blessed, this is the same word that is used in the Beatitudes. Blessed who do not see. Who is that? That's us, right? That's us. And believe what? Believe what the disciples believed. That Jesus had risen from the dead. That Jesus was there with them. That Jesus was not dead but alive even to the end of the age. Listen to what Moses tells the people of Israel as he prepares to depart. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 says this. Moses says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Again, Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. That's his presence. He will be with you, his person. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. The solution to fear is faith in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop there in John chapter 20. What does Jesus do? He says, peace be with you. And then what does he show them? He shows them the evidence for the power that worked to raise him from the dead and to cleanse them of their sins. 
he shows them the evidence of his peace-bringing work. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. What was Jesus doing here? He was showing them the reason they could have peace that went way beyond the circumstances they were experiencing. These marks in the body of Jesus were proof of his sacrifice to bring about peace with God. Instead of birthmarks, Jesus has resurrection power marks in his hands and in his side. I find it interesting that in Luke's account, Jesus goes even further showing them the evidence of his work in his hand, in his side, and in his resurrection. And then John continues in verse 20 by saying, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Sometimes I think words do not capture fully the emotion that happened in moments like this. They didn't just rejoice, they rejoiced, right? They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Imagine thinking that he was dead, that their hope was gone, and then seeing their Lord visibly. That joy had to be unparalleled. I remember in each uh, child coming to this world, the inexpressible joy that I had in my heart meeting each of them. The struggle of life coming into the world and then the joy that fills your heart when you see this new little life and what God has done. But this joy that the disciples had was of a greater magnitude even than that. The one who they had spent years with, who had died they'd seen with their own eyes was there. And I think it's interesting that in our text for the second time now, Jesus says what? Peace be with you. They are overjoyed. The first peace be with you is to calm their fears. Maybe the second peace be with you is to calm their rejoicing so that he could say something to them. Peace be with you. And Jesus adds something very important in verse 21. It wasn't that they were to experience peace simply to experience peace, but they were to have a purpose. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And this is important. As the Father has sent me I also send you. This is the pre-commissioning of his disciples before the great commission at his ascension. His commissioning included a command that would make it impossible for them to remain where they were. Jesus sends them out to walk past their fears and to represent him in the world. When the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus was sent to testify to the Father, to do the work of the Father, which included dying on the cross. The word for send could be translated dispatched. I like that. They're being dispatched to be his messengers 
and his representatives. I like some of the old war movies where uh, their communication is limited, so sometimes they dispatch someone to go deliver a message to another company. That's what Jesus is communicating here. He's dispatching them for his work. This means they could not be shackled by fear. They had a mission to do, which is exactly what we see them doing in the book of Acts. In John 4.34, Jesus said his food was to do the will of the Father. And now our food is to do the will of Jesus. In John 8.29, Jesus said that he always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now we seek to do the things that are pleasing to Jesus. Then we get some interesting verses here. I love the theology that is interwoven in texts like this. We see Jesus breathing on his disciples and talking about forgiving sins. What is going on in this text? What is happening here? Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, we could nerd out on uh, both the tense and the, the words that are used here, the different views that are taken. It's interesting as you look at, at different commentaries, for every commentary that you read, you get like five different views, right? I don't want us to miss the point of what Jesus was communicating. Jesus just commissioned the disciples in the previous verse and told them, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. That's the emphasis. But there's two questions we need to answer here of these verses. First is this. Did they receive the Spirit right here in John 20, 22? Is this the moment that they received the permanent indwelling of the Spirit? It can't be because of what we see in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Jesus commands his disciples in Acts 1 verse 4 not to leave Jerusalem. Why? But they were to wait for what the Father had promised. And what is it that the Father had promised? The Holy Spirit. Again, in Acts 1.8, well after Easter Sunday, Jesus says that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Future tense will receive. This indicates that they had not actually received the permanent power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit here. In Acts 2, they clearly received that at that point. The Spirit is visible in the event at Pentecost and comes in power and the disciples start speaking in tongues. Nothing like what is happening here in John 20. Probably the best way to understand this verse is a symbolic promise of the gift of the Spirit that would be delivered to them at Pentecost. The resurrection of Jesus was the next link in the chain of the Holy Spirit's arrival But it wasn't until the ascension, Jesus going back to heaven, that the Holy Spirit would come. It was necessary for the Son to go back to the Father for the gift of the Spirit 
to be delivered. It's as if the death and now resurrection of Jesus was the, the purchase date, much like an order from Amazon. You get a purchase date and then you see the tracking history, right? You have the purchase date and then it takes a couple days for the delivery to arrive. The Holy Spirit would come fully at Pentecost. The resurrection was the purchase date. The ascension was the update to the tracking order and Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit was delivered fully. It's also important to note that the Greek doesn't actually say he breathed on them, but rather he breathed. I think we get a little extra dramatic flair there with he breathed on them. We're picturing what's happening there, right? He breathed. Listen to what one commentator says. This was a purely symbolic and prophetic act, reminiscent of the vivid object lessons frequently employed by Old Testament prophets to illustrate their message. In other words, Christ did not through this puff of breath, actually and literally impart the Spirit in His fullness to them. Rather, He declared in a visible figure what would happen to them at Pentecost, end quote. The second question that we need to answer just briefly is, what does it mean for them to forgive sins in verse 23? Roman Catholics would love to jump on this and say now the the church, the Roman Catholic Church, has the authority to forgive sins. This view would be contradictory to what we see elsewhere in the Gospels. What is it that made Jesus deity? It's that when he healed people, he didn't just heal them, but he actually forgave sins. It was an evidence that he was God. We see in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is sharing the Gospel, he says in 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't pronounce forgiveness on them, but says, Repent and believe, and forgiveness would be established for them. Remember the context of verse 21, where Jesus is sending his disciples out as delegates, right? Those who are representing him. And as his delegates, the apostles even performed miracles. But more foundational to that, they preached the gospel, which is the message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. When someone repents of sin and puts their trust fully in Jesus Christ, we can confidently say that their confession of Christ results in forgiveness. Our decrees on earth aren't going to change the decrees in heaven. In fact, that's what this text makes clear. As his delegates, if we preach the gospel and the message of forgiveness to the dying, and God regenerates hearts, as the text says, their sins have been forgiven them. That's something that already takes place. Again, listen to another commentator. And Morris says this, the verbs are forgiven and are not forgiven are in the perfect tense. This means that the spirit-filled church can pronounce with authority that the sins of such and such a people have been forgiven or have been retained. If the church is really acting under the leadership of the spirit, it will be found that her pronouncements in this matter do not but reveal 
do but reveal what has already been determined in heaven. It's already happened. It's already taken place. And now we can confidently say when someone embraces Jesus Christ that their sins are forgiven. Verse 24 closes one scene and opens another scene. The disciples are, of course, overjoyed at the presence of Jesus. And now they go to Thomas and tell him what has happened. Look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, meaning twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Where was Thomas when this first happened? Why was it that only the ten were together? We aren't told, but remember Thomas is the one who feels deeply. When Lazarus dies, what happens? Thomas says, well, let's all go die with him, right? He feels deeply. Thomas was probably in the pit of despair. He probably couldn't function because his Lord had just died. It's not enough for Thomas to hear that the Lord had risen, according to the account of the disciples. He needed to see him for himself. It was not enough for Thomas to see the Lord. He needed to put his hand and his fingers in the wounds that brought about salvation. Unless both of these things happened, Thomas says he would never believe. The Greek is intense. It's a double negative. Ume, he repeats the negative twice. And unlike English, it doesn't make it a positive. It increases the intensity of the negative. I will never believe The solution to fear is faith. Maybe the pessimism of Thomas had an effect on the rest because where do we see the disciples in verse 26? After eight days, his disciples were where? Again inside. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, same word that's used back in verse 19, and stood in their midst and said, again, right? Peace be with you. Jesus came once again and stood and spoke these three verbs together. He just shows up in their midst. And for the third time now, he says, peace be with you. The loving Savior wanted them to be so assured that he had risen and that he was there, that he manifests this great patience with Thomas. And that gives me hope because in my times of doubting or my times of questioning, the same patient Savior is here with us. Look at the patience of Jesus in verse 27. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands 
and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. This tender correction from our Savior for his disciple, the patient affirmation, put your finger here, Thomas, put your hand here, is exactly what I need at times as well. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Whatever trouble we face in this life, we do not face it alone without the presence of our Savior. Again, Matthew 28, verse 20. I am with you when? Always. For how long? Even to the end of the age. The presence of Jesus is always with us to the end of the age. This reality is what transformed the disciples from being afraid to going forth and proclaiming the good news of the gospel and power. When we sense fear having a hold in our hearts, we must return to this passage and say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. We must recognize that in the world we will have trouble. This trouble produces fear, but we have been sent. We've been dispatched by Jesus Christ himself, and he has overcome the world. What transforms our fear is belief. And this belief produces supernatural peace, even if our circumstances don't change. Maybe you're here this morning, or on the live stream, and you find yourself struggling with fear. Talk to one of your wonderful pastors or elders. I am, and we all are, doubting disciples at times, right? That's what the body of Christ is for, to encourage one another, as long as it's called today. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're fearful because this peace you do not have. Maybe you haven't trusted in his work for you on the cross. You haven't seen the nail wounds in his hands and recognized that we are all sinners deserving death and Christ has paid the price for your sin in full. You must repent and believe. Don't let another moment go by. Look down at verse 31. This isn't part of the text that we're looking at this morning, but it concludes very well the message. Verse 31, but these have been written, what? Everything we just read, everything that's contained in the Gospels. So that you may believe that Jesus, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the one who was sent, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Treasure these words. Treasure this story that is left for us that is more than a story, but it's something that God wants to use in us to change our hearts. came across this poem as I was studying for this text. It's from Annie Johnson Flint, someone who experienced much hardship in her life. Listen to these words. She captures well what we're talking about. It says this, I know not, but God knows. 
O blessed rest from fear. All my unfolding days to him are plain and clear. Each anxious puzzled why from doubt or dread that grows finds answers in this thought. I know not, but he knows. I cannot, but God can. O balm for all my care. The burden that I drop, his hand will lift and bear. Though eagle pinions tire, I walk where once I ran. This is my strength to know. I cannot, but he can. I see not, but God sees. O all-sufficient light, my dark and hidden way to him is always bright. My strained and peering eyes may close in restful ease, and I in peace may sleep. I see not, but he sees. The solution to fear is faith in the presence and in the person of Jesus Christ. And that faith produces supernatural peace. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word. And you've recorded in your word the experiences of those who believed in you. Lord, at times we are unbelieving. At times we doubt. At times we have fear. But your presence and who you are, not just 2,000 years ago, but at this moment, causes our fear to flee. Give us a faith, I pray. Give us a trust. Give us a belief in you that is a bedrock for us in anything that we could face in this life. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.